Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, going over to Brooklyn, sister borough to my hometown of Queens, and I have on Derek Schlesselman from Van Brunt Stillhouse down at Red Hook. Derek, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So uh, yeah, I got to go down and visit Van Brunt in person, uh, taste through the lineup, uh, plus a couple of special items that you had on there, and I wanted to have you on because I'm as much as I talk to distillers and uh, producers around the world, I really do want to put a focus on New York whenever I can. Great. We all love New York. Yeah. So let's start where we all start, which is uh, the origin for Van Brunt. Uh, Yeah. So we, uh, we turned 10 this year. Um, And uh, so about 10 years ago, I, well, actually more than 10 years ago, but, but when I, when I started to conceptualize the business, I was, uh, doing some home brewing and um, making cider and things at home, and and um, you know, it, uh, I've always been a maker. I've I, I, I like make my own furniture, and when I bought my house, I did a lot of the renovations myself, and um, and I've always fixed my car myself and things like that. But I um, uh, I always considered distilling to be sort of the province of either you know hillbillies, not to. Uh, I've come from a long line of hillbillies, so I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that I always imagined it being like a moonshine still in the mountains or uh, a factory. And I, I didn't really aspire to either of those things. And so it, it never really crossed my mind until one New Year's Eve, I uh, was reading the back of a European uh, brandy bottle, Eau de Vie, and I was like, wow, you know, I, I, it just was, a, it, was a, it shifted my mentality about distilling uh, when I realized that there, that artisanal distilling was sort of possible. Uh, and I'm not sure really why I didn't think about it before that, but, um, uh, so I went and bought a, uh, a small still from Portugal is a really classic Alembic still, uh, in when I got it, imported it into the U S it was imported as a garden ornament. Um, and, uh, and I started making brandy, uh, well, actually not straight away. My, my goal was making brandy, but, uh, I was t- fermenting brandy is really complicated or not complicated, but it's, it's exacting. And I didn't want to waste any good cider on bad brandy. And so I taught myself to distill using rum. Um, and that's sort of where I fell in love with rum. Um, fast forward a couple of years, I was sort of feeling like I wanted to get out of my um, corporate job. And, uh, and so I, I, uh, decided to start a small business. And, um, and I knew that um, if I was going to make spirits, uh, that the spirit I wanted to make was whiskey, because that's that as a consumer, that's definitely what I was consuming. And as a beer maker, I really wanted to sort of stick with grain. And so um, I started a whiskey distillery in Brooklyn. It's fantastic. I, I was you know, can you elaborate a little bit on why uh, brandy is like fermenting brandy is exacting? And I haven't talked to anyone on brandy particularly yet. So, well, you know, it's um, uh, so so when you're making beer, um, I guess making beer is also exacting, um, but but in a different way because you're taking and converting starches into sugars, and with brandy, um, you you just have the sugars, and so um, you. Uh, it's, it's really about making, getting the pH right. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, now that I'm saying it out loud, it's really the same as whiskey. I guess whiskey is the same thing. You're still concerned about pH and you're still concerned about um, all these things. But with brandy, it's, it's not so much, maybe not, it's not so much exacting as it is, um, you know, you're just buying a, spending a bunch of money on fruit and, uh, and it takes longer to ferment and you, and it's a little bit more painstaking to do the good ferment. And you've spent, so if you spent weeks and weeks fermenting this, this cider, uh, and it's really delicious and you, you feel like you really hit a home run. Um, it was just really nerve wracking to then worry about dumping that down the drain. So, um, uh, I guess I'll take back the exacting part. It's really no more exacting than making anything else. But, but the thing is, is you're kind of stuck with what you're stuck with. Like, it, like you, you can make uh, acid adjustments, but those acid adjustments really have an impact on the flavor of your, of your brandy. 
Whereas with the uh, pH adjustments on whiskey, it's, it's not so much changing the flavor of the whiskey as it is changing the efficiency of the whiskey, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Completely. Um, I did promise no gotcha questions. Didn't mean that to be one, but had, <laughs> no, had, to, delve right. in. had to delve in. So um, as you mentioned, you're in, we're in Brooklyn uh, and specifically in Red Hook. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you're kind of in the, a crescent where a lot of the New York distillers, particularly those in Brooklyn are, are in. Um, but why, when you were deciding to start what is now Van Brunt, uh, did you decide that particular location? Uh, well, it was, it was really super easy for me because I lived in the neighborhood and um, uh, I fell in love with Red Hook uh, a, a number of years, I guess, uh, 17 years ago. So, so seven years before I opened the distillery and, uh, and I really actually 19 years now. Wow. Uh, so a long time ago. And I, um, I really loved Red Hook. I loved uh, the community and I loved the, the architecture and the, and the place itself. And, uh, and it, in, and, but I think the reason that there's that crescent of distilleries here is that it's, it's the proper zoning, it's a manufacturing zoning and it's, and and consequently there's the buildings that are appropriate for being a distillery to be a distillery. You want to be in a masonry building. It needs to have sprinklers. And these are all things that industrial buildings in New York city have. And so you don't have to spend a bunch of extra money, um, you know, retrofitting your space to, to be appropriate for a distillery use. Right. <clears throat> it makes sense. And, and that actually brings up a topic I was going to hold off on until later, but uh, it happened last year with the new, I forget whether it's city or state, so forgive me on this, but new um, regulations on, you know, on where distilleries could be in the city. <laughs> Yeah, you know, actually, the, the, the new regulations have loosened it up ever so slightly. You know, the, the fire department was a little slow um, to pay attention to the sort of explosion, uh, no, no pun intended there, the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the blooming of the number of distilleries in New York City. And um, they, they realized a little late that there are all these alcohol manufacturers being uh, popping up in, in New York City. And uh, and when they came to try and regulate them, they realized that the current regulations were really designed for industrial ethanol plants and not for distilleries. And so uh, they, uh, you know, to their credit, they they called the New York Distillers Guild and and the New York City component of the New York State Distillers Guild uh, stepped up to sit down with them and negotiate through what reasonable fire codes look like and and how we could have um distilleries continue to exist in new york city in the way that we wanted them to exist and still be safe and uh you know new york city distillers and new york state distillers have had a an exemplary safety record and um and we'd like to continue that we all want to operate in a safe manner and uh it's been great working with the fire department to sort of iron out those details uh but before um technically speaking you had to be in an, an, an what's called an M3 zone, which is sort of heavy industrial. And, and sadly, um, the heavy industrial parts of New York are, are, are slowly going away and, and being replaced by residential neighborhoods. And, um, and, but also to be a successful distillery, you wanna have um, customers come to your distillery and M3 zones are sort of by their very nature, not in areas where a lot of people hang out. So um, a lot of the, the distilleries were popping up um, in M1 zones, which is sort of the least restrictive zone. And, um, and the fire department recognized that for craft, small craft distilleries, that was totally safe and fine and, and appropriate. And so they have uh, changed the regulations and now we're allowed to be in M1 zones as well as M2 and M3. It's fantastic. I got a little wonky. Oh, sorry, go got a little wonky there, but you know. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. This podcast likes wonky stuff. So, uh, yeah, because I was thinking, I, I visited with uh, Alex Alex Clark over at um, Fort Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I visited him recently, and then I visited him uh, originally back in maybe March or April of twenty one, and uh, you know, he like the tasting room wasn't even open at that point, but being an industry city. 
uh, he was pointing out the different spaces that were adjacent to the space he had with the distillery and the eventual tasting room and said, you know, we'd love to be in that room over there, use that room as a barrel warehouse or a barrel room, but you know, there are fire codes that we got to adhere to over there. Um, so I believe now he's been able to take over some of those adjacent spaces because of that re, you know, rethinking of legislation and zoning laws. Right. And um, I mean, similarly, industry cities also, and I'm just using that as an example, it's become such a family friendly place and like all the food nice. and shops and all of that. So um, at, to your point, you can't have something that's liable to explode over there. You need the proper sprinklers and all, and all of that while still maintaining an atmosphere where people can walk through, taste things, and then spread through word of mouth. Right. Um, so I was really glad to see that that, that, that uh, went through and of course wanted to, to talk to you about it. So uh, going to, going back to kind of the origin story of Van Brunt, um, time-wise, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were one of the earliest distillers back in the city, like around the same time Colin of Kings County was coming up and a couple of the other ones. Yeah, you know, I, I've, um, you know, the funny thing is, is that I, I percolated this idea for a, a few years before we actually opened. And um, once I met all the other distillers in the city, which I, whom I didn't know before we started the distillery, it, it really became apparent really quickly that we all sort of had the idea at the same time. And some of us came, were sort of brought our ideas to uh, our visions to, to bear more quickly than others. And so, um, you know, Kings County, I think is officially like six months older than we are. And um, uh, New York distilling is a few months older. Um, uh, Brooklyn um, distilling is a couple of months older and um I feel like I'm forgetting somebody else who also opened at that same time period. Oh, uh, uh, Greenhook Ginsmiths um, uh, opened about that same time. Uh, so yeah, all these places sort of popped up within six months of each other. Right, and it, we're going to keep using the word explosion, the explosion of uh, distilling back <laughs> in New York after all those all those decades of uh, yeah nothing happening was fantastic and. This is a, it's a weird question to ask, but I feel as though just from, from what I've uh, read and looking through the products and of course being uh, reading through whiskey media and such, you and Van Brunt don't seem to get as much uh, like recognition or press time or airtime as some of your peers. And I was wondering, like, certainly it's not only do you have the time behind it, that's deserving of it and the products, but I was curious if that's kind of by design that you want to go slightly more under the radar. <laughs> Well, I don't think anybody, any business wants to be slightly under the radar. Um, you know, it's um, uh, some of it is um, is is sort of um, time and money, and some of it is um, is is just you know have being in, being in the face of um, of media at the, same, at the right time, and um, you know some of the other distilleries. In, engage PR firms and and or have people on staff who are whose job it is to to engage media and um, and I think it's it's important to have a story to tell the media and I think that that's uh, often been the case with some of my um, my cohorts um, you know I would love to have more media attention but but um, you know we 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 focus on making good whiskey and getting it out and getting in people's hands. Yeah, look, at, and I really mean nothing wrong with that at all. It was more just a, th a thought of, you know, wow, this guy, this still house should be, uh, you know, uh, you know, going to, they should be on a number of, of podcasts or in, in an article here or there or something. And uh, granted, look, Colin puts in a hell of a time at Kings County. He's on, he's blanking in the airwaves, but um, there is kind of a middle ground that I was always curious, like, to see yeah um, i mean colin is um colin is also from the publishing you know before he was a distillery he was in publishing so he um had, he's very uh aware of the right channels to be in and and uh and i mean that as not as a criticism but as a compliment 
No, of course, of course. Uh, well, hopefully this will um, start getting you a little more of that attention you deserve because uh, as I said, I visited and I enjoyed your products because otherwise we wouldn't be having this chat. So fantastic. Uh, so with that, I mean, I think that's a great opportunity to just dive into some of the some of the products. So like I said, for uh, for time consideration, we're not going to go through the entire portfolio, but uh, I encourage people definitely to go, you know, visit Van Brunt uh, down at Red Hook and and try uh, the tasting room hours are right on the website, which will be linked in the show notes. Uh, so make sure to go by and, and have a visit. Uh, so starting with your process, uh, you mentioned, you know, you started with before Van Braun was official, you started with a, uh, a, an Alembic still trying out what you wanted to do with the cider and, and brandy and such. Uh, at what point did you decide, okay, we got to move from that to like real production and uh, what you have now, which I think is a Carl still. Yeah, so the the um, uh, the Olympic still was on was just uh, sort of uh, fun at home. I mean, they, that 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 still produced about a pint of spirit every time you ran it. Um, <laughs> and an in, interesting factoid, you know, uh, a five gallon still takes the same amount of time to run as a five hundred gallon still, uh, which takes the same amount of time as a five thousand gallon still, and so. Uh, in, when it comes to time investment, you kind of want to go as big, as big as, from a business point of view, you want to go as big as you can afford to run. Um, and, uh, and so I got the biggest still that I could afford at the time. And I, I chose the Carl still because it's super flexible. It's designed, was originally designed as a, as a German O to V still they were making when, when, Carl started making stills. They're mostly making it for fruit producers. And um, because of the way it's designed, uh, it's very flexible. You can make gin with it. You can, you can take the column out of the uh, still and use it just as a pot still, or you can um, put the column in and you can get more, um, uh, a, a finer, lighter spirit if you'd like it. And, and all that flexibility. And it also has a, uh, you can make a grappa with ours you can do all sorts of great things with ours still and uh that's what attracted me to to the carl and it's also super well engineered it's it's super easy to use and uh and it's beautiful to look at so that's why i went with the carl and um uh and you know when i started making rum as a home distiller i I, I was doing it because I didn't like rum. I just thought it was sort of a throwaway to me. And uh, it was in the course of starting to taste the rum coming off of the still that I really started to recognize all the wonderful nuances of rum. And, um, and so it was our very first commercial product that we got, that we made with the rum, with the uh, Carl still, once we got the Carl still uh, started. And um, so I'd say for the first few months, that's really all we did was, was all rum all the time. And uh, that's sort of how we christened the still and how we got things going. And, um, and scaling up rum production from five gallons to 500 liters um, or 150 gallons or whatever that is, um, that we put in our still, it's, that wasn't really a big leap of faith for me. I, it wasn't a big deal for me to scale the rum and that scale, but um, scaling whiskey production or beer production from, from five gallons to, to 500 gallons is a much bigger deal. And, um, and so I sort of approached that a little bit more slowly. And, um, and, and so we, we did a number of test batches in our first year, to sort of um, learn our craft in that in that way, um, and our first product we made, uh, our first whiskey that we made was a four grain whiskey that was our American whiskey. Right, and I got to uh, I got to try that while I was down there, which was uh, lovely. It was let's see, and it, this goes to the mash bill question because it's quite a different mash bill than I've seen <laughs> on, on anything before. So yeah. right now I have written down it's 35% wheat, 35% malted barley, 15% corn and 50% rye. Right. And kind of a, uh, what, uh, Brooks called a, uh, farmhouse style. Yeah. So, so it, um, you know, I, I took that, um, that 
that axiom of you know if, when you're when you're starting a business you want to differentiate your product i i took that um axiom to sort of the extreme and uh tried to envision uh my own whiskey that was really not like anybody else's and uh being a big beard producer maker rather i i really wanted to use a lot of malt and uh uh but i wanted my whiskey to be a little bit softer than a single malt and that's why i brought in all that wheat content and um you know it it took a little time before i hit the market that when i realized that um that the the spirits business was all predicated the sales end of spirits business and marketing side of spirits business is all predicated on categories and um as much as I wanted to make a non-categorical whiskey, um, when you took it to a liquor store, you took it to a bar, they didn't know what shelf to put it on. And, um, and then it just ended up sort of getting lost on the shelf. And so uh, it was sort of a rude awakening for me that I needed to make something that was, that fit into the category of bourbon or fit into the category of rye so that people could understand it on a consumer end. I mean, that makes sense. It's, uh, and that, that also, I think provides great context for the bourbon mash bill, which still, it's a little more mainstream. I don't think I've seen another one that's like it, but it's still closer, I guess, which, um, has the, the 65% corn, 20% wheat, 10 barley and five rye. Right. Um, but, but to your point about you wanted it to be, when you were talking about the American whiskey, you wanted it to be, um, not only different, but more with, with elements of a single malt without being too malty or do right. you know, somewhere in the middle of there, you do use brewer's yeast for the American whiskey. And then for the bourbon, part of that malt is a roasted malt, like a stout or a porter would have in the beer world. So it sounds like you are, you're, or you were at that point creating a profile that would differentiate yourself just based on that. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't want to make, um, I, I was, uh, as a consumer, before I was a distiller, I was very much a single malt drinker and not a bourbon drinker. And um, and so I, I sort of felt like if I was going to make a bourbon, I wanted to make it uh, not a sort of run-of-the-mill bourbon. And so that's why our, our bourbon really does stand apart from the crowd. Uh, my early re- bourbon recipes didn't have those roasted malts in it. Um, the roasted malts were originally um, my vision for the roasted malts started off as a, as on a single malt product, and um, and then and then that led me to put them into my rye, and then my um, how I felt about I felt I really loved how they affected my rye recipe. And it was only then that I started to, to bring them into the malt, uh, the, sorry, the, the, uh, the bourbon recipe. And um, so it was sort of the probably two or three years into the uh, Van Brunt when we started doing that, when we finally landed on the, on the bourbon recipe that we use now. But it's always, it's always had those percentages of grains. It's just that the, it was the ro- introduction of the roasted malts that came a little later. Gotcha, gotcha. And with the, so we're going to get into a little bit, uh, a little bit later on how many different, uh, how many different barleys and malts you've got going on down there. But uh, do you have, do you tend to use the same kind of yeast across the board or is that also differentiated? Uh, products? Yeah. You know, I used to use um, different yeast for different products and um, uh, and I, I never, you know, when you're making beer, and you're and you're drinking the beer directly as opposed to distilling it. The flavors of the yeast really come through very clearly, and um, and when you distill it, the fla- the yeast flavors are much more subtle. And um, and I so early on, I was I was sort of instinctively using the the yeast that were traditionally used for different products and. It was in talking to, um, you know, in, in, in sitting down with a, a yeast manufacturer at a trade show for a protracted period of time that I sort of realized that, uh, that I really wanted to go, that I wanted the yeast with the most 
esters coming through. And, uh, and that's when I switched all of my whiskeys to the same yeast. And so now we use the same yeast across all of our whiskey line um, because I felt like uh, if anything, I was just missing out on flavors with, by using the, the different yeast. Uh, I was using cleaner yeast for some of the products and, and a more estery yeast for some of the other products. Uh, and that's when I started to sort of unif- make it more uniform. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so with the starting with the American whiskey and the bourbon, and by the way, I'm sipping on the bourbon right now, uh, the anniversary bourbon. Oh, fantastic! Which yeah, it was it was my favorite of my favorite pour of the day uh, when I visited. It was just excellent, um, and for especially for a, a proof hound like me, having a whiskey at 100 proof and really enjoying it, it says something about the whiskey. So right. it's it delicious. Um, but of course, with uh, New York Distilling, we also have to talk about Empire Rye. Right. And uh, you and Van Braun were one of the earliest adopters of this designation. Right. Uh, so how, did you play a part in that designation being created as well? Uh, not really. I was I was sort of uh, on the periphery of that conversation and, and um, you know, I, we were sitting at a distillers uh, guild meeting and um, Christopher from Copper Sea, you know, said, hey, we should create a New York whiskey. And uh, this was back when I was sort of wholeheartedly um, invested in making the American whiskey. And um, and I very, very strongly, um, I, I don't know that I even said it out loud, but I, in my mind, I was like, yeah, you run with your New York whiskey. I'm going to make my own, you know, one of a kind, unique whiskey. And, um, you know, then fast forward a number of years and, um, and I got wind that they had sort of, um, so I, I did not press to get more involved and they, um, they had chosen uh, two New York distilleries to be part of their, um, their group already and and so i think they didn't push me very hard because they already they were trying to have a uh geographically diverse group of people and they already had two new york distillers on it so um they moved forward without me involved and um they created the the parameters for uh empire rye and then i got wind that they were about to launch and so you know these are all friends i know every distiller on that list and um so I was, I just started asking questions, you know, so what is Empire Rye? And when I, when I learned what Empire Rye was, it, it was like, well, I make Empire Rye already. Um, my, the rye that I had sort of decided to make fit the description of rye with one exception, which is that um, I, at the time, was making all of my rye in 10-gallon casts and aging it for a year. And um, I, I'm a... Uh, you know, the, the, the age question is a, is a, is an ongoing debate in the, in the whiskey world. And um, I think that older whiskey has a lot of things to bring to the table. Um, But I think that younger whiskey gets short um, shrift in the business. And I think there are lots of things about a young whiskey that if it's well-made that are really interesting. And I, uh, I stand by my decision to, to make a one-year-old, rye uh it had a lot of grain flavor and it was and it was super bright uh um and it was the one thing that that sort of held me back from being exactly an empire rye and so uh this was like six months before they were going to roll out empire rye Uh, and so i held back a couple of my casts uh so that they would be two years old when they launched and um and so we launched uh, we we were sort of their first adopter, the first non-founder to to make an empire rye, and um, uh, and I've I've now been become more involved in the the administration of of empire rye, and uh, I was definitely part of the conversations to, um, you know, we decided we we changed a couple of the rules along the way, and I was definitely part of the the conversation to change those rules, um, but. Um, you know, I, I'm very happy now. Now my whiskey's a little different than it was back then. I now put it in 30 gallon casks, and uh, we age it for 
uh, two to three years. And, and, uh, I'm really happy with my empire rye. I think it's fantastic. Um, and it, but it's very different than the same liquid that I had when it was in a smaller cask for a shorter period of time. Of course. I don't know uh, if I answered I mean, the question about empire. Rye. Yeah. No, no, you did. You did. The, the whole idea is just to explore, you know, what, what places empire rye have in your distillery and yeah. your distillery have an empire rye. And so one of the other uh, regulations for empire rye as uh, just telling for listeners is that it must be made from at least 75% New York uh, rye grain. Right. Right. Um, so that could be, you know, it doesn't specify what grain, uh, what uh, strain rather, but it has to be in New York. So, but you've decided to use the uh, Danko rye strain. Yep. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. And now, a word from our newest sponsor. The most exclusive whiskey in the world can't be bought in a store. Born in Edinburgh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is the world's largest whiskey club, with over 30,000 members worldwide. They bottle each cask of whiskey as is, no diluting, no artificial coloring, or chill filtration. With new whiskeys released every week, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society offers the opportunity to taste spirits straight from the cask. I've been a member for over two years now, and I've loved the chance to explore my favorite distilleries with truly unique offerings, in particular from distilleries 4 and 53, and discovering new single malts not available anywhere else. Not a Scotch fan? No problem. The Scotch Malt Whiskey Society releases 20-plus bottles each month to its members, including, yes, Scotch, but also including gin, bourbon, rum, and more. In fact, my favorite recent bottling was a corn whiskey, from the largest family-owned distillery in the U.S., aged 11 years in New Oak and bottled at cast strength. This is a bottling that people have clamored for for years, and it was only available to Scotch Malt Whiskey Society members. If you're interested in joining, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has graciously offered a discount to listeners of this podcast. Use code WRP, short for Whiskey Ring Podcast, at checkout for 20% off an annual membership at smwsa.com. That stands for Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America. I will also be putting the link and code in my bio and show notes for this and upcoming episodes. Thank you to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society for joining the Whiskering Podcast as our newest sponsor. And please visit smwsa.com with code WRP for 20% off your annual membership. And so, so I, I, I started using Danko largely because that's what my farmer liked. Uh, and I really wanted to lean on him for his, uh, for, for what worked agronomically for him. Um, I think that that's, that's important is to sort of not try and pigeonhole, um, you know, the wrong grain into the wrong soil. Um, and, uh, but I really like it because it's a little softer than uh, what's called a land race rye. Just um, rye, rye actually is, um, it's very, I don't know if this is the right word to use or not, but it's, it's very promiscuous in that it, it, it's very easily crossbred. And so if you, um, if you have five farmers that are within a certain geographic distance after a couple of seasons, they'll all have the same rye. And um, uh and that 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 same rye is what you call you call that a land race rye, meaning it doesn't have um, sort of a specific genetic integrity to it. And um, 
and the land race rye in New York tends to be a little spicier than Danko rye. Uh, but again, I really was leaning on my farmer to tell me what rye worked for him. And, and, and the Danko rye has a little bit shorter, um, thicker stock. And, and so in the part of the Finger Lakes where my farmer uh, is, it was uh, particularly well suited for him. It makes sense. I think uh, we've had Black Button on the distillery before, on the distillery, uh-huh. on the podcast before, um, also using Tanko Rise. So, you know, it, it certainly makes sense. It's what it's well adapted to New York. Um, but I am always fascinated when you use specific strains, particularly as rise becoming more prevalent, more important, and uh, taking up more space on the shelves. So, right now, so as you said, the Empire Rye is coming out 30 gallon barrels. Uh, two plus years old. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, two things really, was uh, first thing is you use a number two char. Yep. As opposed to something a little higher. So uh, what um, does that do for the, the rye flavor as opposed to using like a three or a four? Um, well, you know, the, um, the I use the same barrel char for all my whiskeys. And, and the reason I do that is that it tends to have a... Um, uh, it, 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 it has a little bit more like of the baking spice of the wood that comes through. And, um, and I, I did an early experiment when we first started out and I bought a different, a number of barrels with a number of different chars and we, um, and we created this, uh, and then I put the same liquid in all the different chars and then tasted them later and decided which of those flavors, um, I liked and, and I landed on the number two char again. I like this, the spiciness that the number two char brought and, um, uh, and it just seemed like the right fit for the flavor profiles. Um, you know, with whiskey making, there's just so much, so many variables, every single step along the way, there is some component that you're, you're able to sort of tweak the flavors and, um, uh, and the whiskey chars, the, the barrel char is one of those things where I, I, I sort of uh, made that decision early on and have just sort of run with it. Hey, if it works, it works. Yeah. Um, did it, in uh, going from a smaller barrel to the 30 gallon, did you have to change the char at all from, from that perspective? Or was it two still appropriate on both sides? No, the two, the two still work for me. Um, those, those, that particular flavor profile does not uh, is not really impacted by the by the char. Uh, it's really just about the time and the in the and the um, esterification that happens in the barrel, more so than the char. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, the last thing in the Empire Ride, just to to mention, is as you said, you added in the darker uh, roast malt. So uh, the rye recipe is is also different. It's very high malt it's 75% Danko rye 25% malted barley and of that 25% of the malted barley the 3% is cocoa roasted well the 3% is um is specialty malts it's not uh 3% okay. cocoa malt would be a really roasty got you got so uh so wait, so it's twenty five percent malt barley, right? Three percent would be so. Um, how different so is it in in profile between? I I thought I might have misheard. I thought the I heard the three percent when I was at the tasting room, but um, I could have. Well, heard that's the that that's the yeah. It may have it may have been a uh, yeah. It may have been a simple word uh, switch. It's especially malts are any malt that's been. Um, sort of modified beyond its standard, the standard brewer's malt. So when you add, as you add heat, you, you go through caramelized malts and into roasted, you start in caramelized flavored and you end up in roasted flavor, depending on how hot you get. And, um, uh, and so those, uh, like a, in, a, in a typical IPA, you're using three or four specialty malts. Um, none of which are roasted. It's not until you start getting into the brown ales and the and the stouts and the porters that you end up getting those roasted, uh, especially malts. So um, in in the rye bill, there in addition to roasted malt, 
there is also caramelized malt and um, both both caramelized malted rye and caramelized malted barley. Gotcha. Okay, that makes that makes more sense. And I will make that uh, that adjustment in my notes for sure. So, moving on to uh, the last ca- the last rye, which I was thrilled with and loved it for being really different, which is your white rye. Oh yeah, and, which I know it can't technically be called a rye, but uh, I'll uh, I'll let you explain why. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's um, uh, it, it can be called a rye. You just have to so so rye. Um, um, you know, basically, with all American whiskeys, if you um, if it's more than three years old, you don't have to put an age statement on it. But if it's less than three years old, then you have to put an age statement on it. And so, um, a rye whiskey that is aged for a day can still be called a rye whiskey, um, which is essentially what we're doing with this white rye. It, it is. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, I'm not trying to pull. I'm not going to try and pretend that this is a rye whiskey. Uh, because it's only aged for four months. And um, the evolution of this whiskey is super interesting in that uh, early on, I kind of wanted to do a white whiskey. Uh, Moonshine 10 years ago was sort of all the rage. And, and I just wanted to um, uh, jump on that bandwagon. And, and every distiller wants to have a whiskey that they don't have to age uh, just for cash flow purposes. But um, I found that unaged whiskey, well, I... I it didn't really suit my palate. And, and I found that it was really just more of a novelty for consumers. And so you really never could sell a lot of it. And, um, and I had sort of given up on moonshine and, um, and my, I was selling in, in the UK and the UK distributor really wanted a, um, a moonshine. They didn't care about what it was. They just wanted a moonshine. And I was like, no, I don't do moonshine anymore. And they're like, pretty please (laughs) so i was like uh all right the one the one idea i have up my sleeve is to make it out of rye and um and uh and so i made it i made the the unaged new make and uh and then i i wanted to just take the edge off it a little bit so i put it into some used barrels just to uh to make it a little bit more approachable and and i really love the the flavor profile that came about because of it uh so it's it has that really it's 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 a young whiskey and so it still has that really bold brash bright rye flavor characteristic uh, but it's aged just enough to sort of take the edge off you know i like to make them i wanted on the label i wanted to call it rye reposado uh it is really just like a, a reposado tequila uh, but the TTB really didn't couldn't I couldn't convince them of the uh, wisdom of um, of that. So I, I'm not allowed to put reposado on the label. Sure, understood. That's uh, especially with the rise in, in tequila popularity right now. Yeah, it's you yeah. couldn't even sneak that by right now. Um, that I mean, that being said, having when when I tried it, it was I'm I'm not a big tequila fan at all. Or Mezcals, I want to try a little more, but tequila, I'm just not really into agave spirits, all of that. Um, and yet, this to me tasted like uh, a, it tasted like a rye or American whiskey that could kind of bridge the gap between a bourbon yeah. or a rye drinker and agave spirits. Uh, you know, it's aged in the used casks. So there's not a, as you said, there's not a huge amount of barrel influence. It's just enough to take the edge off. It's still nearly colorless. So it's not, you know, getting, color from the barrel but it was similarly very it was bright refreshing um grassy in a in a good way as opposed to being overly grainy grassy like grassy mm-hmm. just again fresh and and walking through a meadow floral kind of thing so i when um when i was told the alternate title would would have been rye reposado i was like oh that's perfect that's exactly yeah. that's exactly how i would encourage people to, to think about that because even if you can't put it on the label it's that's dead on for how it tasted to me. Um, and after the 10th anniversary bourbon, I believe that was my favorite sip of the day just because of how oh, unique fantastic. it was. And yeah. The so, oldest and the youngest. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm weird like that. Sometimes I, I like, I like unique things, even if I could never duplicate it or find it somewhere else. So, 
that that's always going to be up there on my list. Um, let's see. Oh, so for, for the, I should mention for these barrels. Uh, so where do you get your barrels from? Uh, we have gotten barrels from a lot of different places. Um, and uh, mostly from, there's a couple of cooperages in Minnesota. And um, uh, and then we tried for a little while some a cooperage down in South Carolina. And, uh, and our American whiskey, and our, right now at this very moment, our American whiskey is being aged in recharge casks, uh, where we worked with a Hudson Valley cooperage to take apart our old casks uh, scrape them out um, and then put them back together, rechar them. And, and uh, we age our, our, what our current American as it comes out right now is in those recharred casts. And they're a uh, uh, recharred to back to a char number two. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, this cooperage is a little, is very um, um, artisanal in meaning they don't have a, you know, they they start a char a oak fire that they put their barrels over, uh, versus the sort of high tech computerized version where they have a, um, you know, propane torch and a and a computer with a a laser uh, temperature thermometer measuring the char exactly. So it's not um, it's a little variable barrel to barrel. But gotcha. Okay, uh, I mean. Look, I, I quite enjoyed it. And it seemed to, as you said, the ethos uh, that I'm getting from you and about Van Brunt is that it's less about what it's less about what should be and more about what fits and what seems to work right for the spirit and for what you're trying to do. So yeah. if so that again, our, that artisanal nature for Hudson Valley uh, Cooperage seems to fit right into that as well. Yeah. So um, that is good to know. I was thinking about the barrels and I got to take a couple of pictures of the, of, uh, the warehouse space that you have. And of course, the still, there's a much better picture of the still on your website. So I'm going to scrap my own and just use yours uh, and link to that. Um, so the, the last uh, product line that I really wanted to focus on was your single malt. Yeah. So uh, just as a reminder from from earlier in this conversation, you said, you know, you'd started with uh, brewing, you had, you know, brewer's yeast being used, there are roasted malts in here. So um, in many ways, the single malt seems like a very natural extension of what you had done right from the start. Uh, yeah, you know, I, um, I'm still a single malt fan. I love single malts. And I, um, you know, my, my very early, um, my, my, the first couple of years we were making single malt, I would always make it different. Every, every time I made it, I made it a little bit different. And that was in part just uh, related to, to sort of my beer, um, you know, my, my feelings as a home brewer, why would you make, this, why would you make the same beer over and over again as a home brewer? You should always be making something different. And I, and so I was always curious about, oh, well, what would this malt taste like? And what would that malt taste like? And um, and so there was every single cask was different and, um, blending them together and then coming up with the product was always fantastic. And I had this vision that we would do, uh, um, like, a um, vintage style marketing approach. And, um, my wife at the time was doing the sales at the time. And she came to me and was like, you're killing me. I can't possibly sell this vintage approach to single malt uh, people people buy the bottle and they want the next bottle to taste like the last bottle and it, and it's too difficult you can't we can't do it and um so i i acquiesced and was like all right you're right uh and i and i settled in on a recipe for the malt and we made that recipe for a number of years and uh and early on i was committed to uh making American whiskey and American whiskey, this sort of this, this, you know, written or unwritten, depending on where, what you're talking about, uh, rule for American whiskey is new casks. And um, so my early single malt was all in new casks. And, um, and I was, I was super proud of that moment in time in our single malt. Uh, but, it, but 
from all of our whiskey that we made, it was by far the least, the smallest seller. Uh, we sold the least amount of our single malt. And so uh, it became increasingly, from a business point of view, it, it just didn't make a lot of sense for us to have that um, single malt line in the way that it was. And um, so we basically decided to discontinue the single malt, but I, I really wasn't capable of that personally. <laughs> and so <laughs> I kept making single malt, but I, but I, I sort of went back to the vintage mode. I would make a, I would make batches that were a little bit uh, that stood apart a little bit. And, and we also started putting the, the single malt into used casks. And, um, uh, and so now we're sort of back to this vintage mode. Uh, but now instead of every single batch being different, we, we, we blend a batch every twice a year. So we have a, a we have a spring and a, in a fall or a summer and a winter, depending on what, what, what our exact timing is, uh, vintage of our single malt. And, um, that way people, uh, we've been able to sort of, it's a middle ground where, where there's a little bit of consistency for a number of months and then it changes and um and it allows people to get the the depth of uh flavor options that that Van Brunt can have but it also allows me to enjoy making single malt Aaron uh if I again wrote this down correctly you use eight different barleys <laughs> well I mean uh, uh, yeah I would I would say that's an approximation uh, I mean, I think that there, there are probably eight malts in each batch, but it's probably different malts in different times. Gotcha. I mean, I, I had to ask about that because it was eight barleys that I uh, wrote down when I was there, but then I saw on the site that there were like a dozen or so yeah, different malts. Being yeah, used. we're, yeah. Sort of, that, it sort of depends on what... Um, you know, so so when you buy a pallet of malt, you buy thirty-two bags. So if I needed to buy twenty-six bags, you know, it's silly not to to fill up your pallet. So I would just uh, I would find the the malt that I was sort of curious about, and I would, you know, get five bags of that malt. There are three bags of this and two bags of that, and uh, and then the way that I'd end up uh, implementing those those sort of um, orphan bags of barley is to to um, to put it into the single malt. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, look, makes sense for from a business perspective. It was just, it was something. Again, you know, you know, we usually hear they're like most distillers of American single malt. They're very particular about which malt strain they want to use. They're like, this is the one we're going to use. We've tried it, um, but I, I'm amazed that you that you're able to um, maintain that kind of consistency even with with so many different barley's and maybe one or two swap in places from batch to batch. Well, it, um, yeah, just to be clear, there's no consistency. Um, if you have a, well. my spring malt and you have my winter malt, they are wildly different creatures. Um, and, uh, you know, I have this, I, I actually have this mantra that I tell everybody at the distillery that, um, that it's not about consistent uh, flavor. It's about consistent quality. So, if things taste a little different from this batch to the next, I am fine with that. But what is important is that this batch tastes as good as the last batch or better. Uh, but we're never, we're never trying to back, go backwards in the quality standard. But then that, and that makes sense. And it's that can, so see, I do see that as consistency in a way, because it's, even though it's, you know, inconsistent flavor, it might change from batch to batch. Um, as you said, there's the consistency of quality. So, you yeah. know, that even, I look at it like uh, looking at a single barrel of any any other product. You know, if you trust that yeah. the production methods in the distillery are good, then not every single barrel is going to taste the same, but you're probably going to enjoy most of them despite the differences or because of the differences even. So that parallel came to mind. Yeah. One of my favorite um, things about being a distiller is that it, it, you, it carries a certain amount of... Um, of cachet when you go visit other distilleries. And I went, I was in, uh, I was not in the U S and I won't name this distillery. Um, but I was in a, in a, in a whiskey distillery that was not in the U S and got the behind the scenes tour and their warehouse was the size of a football field. And imagine standing on the 50 yard line and, you know, <laughs> there's, 
uh, a football field size uh, amount of whiskey there. And I was talking to the to the production person about. So when you when you make your you know your next batch of whiskey, you know how does the blend? How does the master blender tell you what barrels to take? And the guy said, "We use this row, and then we use that row, and it's like literally dumping." you know, 550 gallon barrels in a batch. And, you know, that's how you get consistency. When, when you're dumping 55, at least 50, 53 gallon casts, it's going to taste the same as the last 50, 53 gallon casts. And, um, and obviously with craft distillers, that's not uh, possible or even desired. Totally understood. And that also made me think of um, how just, Four Roses, for example, um, they use the, or when they put out single barrels or, or, or picks for groups, they do certain runs at a time, like certain Rick runs or rack runs, whatever you want to call right. them. Um, and then people go nuts trying to find, you know, the MW25 line or whatever. And <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's nice and all that. And, uh, you know, I, I can respect the guy who looked, well, I don't know if I respect the guy who's hunting for it like that, but um there, I enjoy the variation between single barrels and, and between products, as long as, as you point out, as long as the consistency is there for the quality, then I'm all for right. trying new things and have a different flavor profile. Um, so I know we are at the top of the hour. Um, I've got really just, you know, one more question for you, if that's okay. Yeah. So, and this is really uh, taking the 30,000 foot view both your role as a New York City distiller, as a and on the State Distillers Guild, um, how is New York whiskey doing, or New York distilling doing, I should say, and where's it going? Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's going really, really well. I, the the Cor- Cornell and some of the other universities have have done have taken great strides in terms of developing new barley strains that are making the malt coming out of New York better than it's ever been. And uh, the distilleries, we have some really mature mis- distilleries that are uh, making really consistent, high quality whiskey uh, year in and year out. Uh, we also have some newcomers that are doing some really innovative things that are really fantastic. And it's really wonderful to see um, some of the new fun people joining the, the crowd. So uh, I, I, to my knowledge, New York distilling has only lost a couple of distilleries in the, in the last 10 years. Um, and uh, so I think that's a testament to the power of the market. And um, I think we still have a lot, a long way to go. you know, unfortunately, the farm to table restaurant movement has not um, has not found its way to, to farm to glass cocktails. Uh, craft cocktails are largely made with non-craft whiskey and non-craft spirits. Unfortunately, um, I would love for the same sort of consistency of of spirit that um, that that drives the food, the farm to table restaurant movement to to find the the same in in cocktails so that um craft spirits can find their place on the bar um but i think consumers love um love craft spirits and and so in in they're clearly in the home bar and and home cocktail makers are clearly embracing them and so uh i think in that sense new york is doing great and and new york the one of the things i love about new york is that um is that we make great whiskey, but we also make great gin and we make great brandy and we make great, you know, uh, <laughs> Amaro's. We, it's, it's like that with so much depth in New York distilling, uh, you really could have uh, a, a great bar with nothing but New York spirits. The only thing you'd be missing is, is agave and, um, you know, you could buy white rye instead. Amen to that. Get into that. Well, Derek, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to to chat with me. Uh, I really hope that, and I'm going to work towards getting Van Brunt some more uh, some more visitors, some more visibility if I can. Um, in the meantime, besides this episode, where can people find you? 
Um, well, we we're on Instagram at uh, at Van Brunt Whiskey, and we uh, we try and do tastings uh, all over the city. And we we're we really are focused on being a New York brand. We're we're not distributed outside of New York, but you can uh, buy if you're not in New York, you can buy products from our website, um, uh, VanBruntStillhouse.com, and uh, we'd love to have you visit. Fantastic! I'll be putting the uh, link to the website and all the socials in the show notes, make sure to go visit uh, Derek and team down in Van Brunt, down in Red Hook. Take the day, go to the distillery, go to uh, any of the fantastic restaurants nearby, visit that crescent of distilling that we mentioned earlier. I promise you're gonna have a great time. Uh, as always, follow Whiskey My Wedding Ring on all the socials, on podcast platforms, leave a five-star rating and review, and we will see you next week. Derek, hold on for a second with me. Sure. All right.